Blog Talk Radio. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer, how to make an ask for money, create your story structure and your trailer, legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Capan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Don Schwartz is an actor and journalist. His book, Telling Their Own Stories, Conversations with Documentary Filmmakers, is available from Amazon. His film reviews and filmmaker profiles appear regularly on FromTheHeartProductions.com, and Don posts new reviews almost daily, and they are quite wonderful, I might add. He holds BA, MA, PhD degrees in psychology and counseling. Carol Dean and Don Schwartz love documentaries, and they created this show to encourage people to watch more docs. Uh, Thank you, Claire. Yes, we did, because we believe that documentary filmmakers are our greatest asset. They find and film stories that are unique and make a contribution to society. And that's what this show is all about, to honor them. And today we have a brilliant historical documentary to review first, Women Behind the Camera. Alexis Kresilovsky is an American filmmaker. She's a writer and a professor. And she pursues her passions for filmmaking, writing, and directing through her company, Raphael Films. She's the writer and director of the global documentary features, Women Behind the Camera and Let Them Eat Cake. So today we're working on Women Behind the Camera. She received multiple awards, including a Lifetime Achievement Award, the Special Award of the Film Festival, The Gate of Freedom, from the 2011 uh, Gdansk Doc Film Festival, 2008 Tribute Award from the San Francisco Women's Film Festival for Achievements in Independent Film, and her film Women Behind the Camera won the Best Documentary Awards at the Female Eye Film Festival and Moondance Film Festival, and her second film, Shooting Women, won many awards all over the world. So, Don, I'm really anxious to hear what you think of Alexis' film, Women Behind the Camera. Well, Carol, this is a, a stunning movie. I mean, if if anyone thinks or asks, why is there a documentary called Women Behind the Camera? If you have to ask that question, you must see this film. Uh, it is about the emergence of women into the professional worlds of cinematography. And we just oftentimes, um, most of the time, don't think, who is behind the camera when I'm watching this, whether it's on a, a movie, a television screen, or a, a computer? And, uh, you know, when it comes to seeing documentary films, it's, 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 you know, it's one thing to know or even have some idea about an unhappy situation. You know, it's easy to be cavalier, to dismiss the topic because it's just one of many. Or, uh, but, but it's much, much different to see 
who are who are its victims speak in, in emote to see those who are its victims speak in remote uh, when you see people on screen uh, they become much more real to you and and this top their topic their issue becomes your topic it becomes your issue and Alexis interviews women around the world she went to at least 10 countries women who who are behind the camera shooting films shooting documentary films movies or journalistic coverage and she tells the stories of abuse harassment assault rape discrimination and and also for women of color there was additional barriers they had to to deal with and so I have some vague idea, well, there's somebody behind the camera. I never thought about the gender. I never thought about the race. And having seen this movie, I am informed. Yes. It's kind of an interesting story, isn't it? Uh, interesting. I, I, could see, uh, I could see a narrative film coming out of the kind of struggles uh, the, the camera woman has faced. Yeah, because there was no such word as camera woman. It was always camera man, and it was hysterical when you ask a guy, what about having a woman? They just smiled at you and said, well, that that is, there isn't such a thing, and how could it be? It's only camera men. It was so racist, I'm telling you. But what you, when you say she did it in 10 countries, um, Alexis actually, in most countries, she hired cinematographers to photograph cinematographers. Now, that's not easy. When you have a great DP that you want to do a bio on and you send someone out to shoot them, <laughs> who are you going to choose to get the lighting right and to get the right questions and You've got to find someone of that elk or better to do the work. So I remember talking to her about that because she won our award, I think, back in 2000. And I'm so proud of the work she's done on this film, Don. You you got the story. You got it in your review. It was hard road to hoe getting women into the documentary field. I'm sorry, into the cinematography field. And it happened through a documentary. Well, uh, the, uh, the the film is self-distributed, so if you want to find it, simply go to the website, and the website is is the title womanbehindthecamera.com. Thank you. Well, I, I have to say, one of the women that she interviewed, Brianne Murphy, was a friend of mine. What a great lady! Very intelligent, creative, pr- terrific cinematographer. She um, was the first one to ever break into the um, the union, and here's her story. She went uh, into the union. It, it was a father-to-son union. It was totally closed, and it was all male. And so she went in. She already had a job because it was a catch-22. You couldn't get in the union if you didn't have a job. You couldn't get a job if you weren't in the union. So she went in and talked to the president of the union, and she said, I want to apply for membership in the union. And he just said, Brian, you know we don't have any women in the union. And she said, well, I, uh, I have a job. I have all the requirements you want. And he said, never, not in my lifetime. So um, Brianne said, okay. She left, and the, and he died in a year or two. So as soon as his 
funeral was over about a month later. She went back into the new president. Same song, second verse. Oh, my gosh. Well, sure, Brianne. This guy was a little nicer. He said, okay, well, uh, give me your paperwork, and I'll get back to you. And, of course, he never called her back because she kept calling him. But fate stepped in, and um, a TV station, I can't remember, it maybe have been CBS, was doing a documentary on women in breast cancer. They called the unit to get a woman cinematographer. And they said to the president, I'm sure you have a woman cinematographer. And he was like, oh, well, uh, of course we do. And <laughs> and he called Brianne, and she got her first job. And she worked for years for them. And then she got on to other uh, to TV shows. I think it was Michael Lansden that she shot with. They, they would not shoot. If she wasn't well enough to come on the set, they would rehearse. They would not shoot without her. They loved her so much. She is so revered in the industry, and she's the one that broke the mold. She got the first. She became the first woman in the um, industry to get into the union. And then, of course, she applied for the uh, cinematographers, American Cinematographers Union um, uh, uh, membership. And they are a bunch of older uh, cinematographers, and they told her, well, Brianne, we'd love to have you, but we don't even have a ladies' room in this clubhouse. So she (laughs) that's not a good excuse. And she kept knocking on the door, and she became the first woman accepted in the American Cinematographers um, organization. So I'm very proud of her. And, of course... uh, Alexis did a marvelous job in telling us her history and who she was, as well as her many counterparts all over the world. So I highly recommend this film. Thank you, Don. That was a great review. So now it's time to go to another film, Through a Lens Darkly. What did you think of this? Yes. Uh, Through a Lens Darkly is written, directed, and edited by... Thomas Allen Harris, and it's distributed by First Run Features. And Harris also narrates the film. And I want to just read uh, what I consider to be his uh, core statement about his film and the topic. How was, is the photograph used in the battle between two legacies, self-affirmation and negation? Our salvation as a people, as a culture, depends on solving the wounds of this war, a war of images within the American Family album. And what Harris means by legacies is worlds. He tells two American worlds, the African-American and the the Caucasian, and as represented by photographers and, and the photographs, their photographs. And he covers two centuries of American history, so you get not just a history of photography, but uh, essentially a history of race relations and, um, and, and intense violent conflict. And there are so many images in this film, Carol, so many characters, so many stories that I, I think we'd have to see this film several times to, to really get everything that Harris is saying. Uh, and I also want to just make one more uh, uh, an acknowledgement that the the film is inspired by a book 
the book is by Deborah Willis, and it's entitled Reflections in Black, A History of Black Photographers, 1840 to the Present. And uh, it, it's a haunting film, and, and it, it contains obviously disturbing images. If it didn't contain disturbing images, images it would not have been a powerful film. Absolutely. No, I think it was a brilliantly edited selection of outstanding images from the 1800s uh, through uh, the 1900s. And the, through these images, you realize how expensive it was to have your picture taken and how few African-Americans had photos because it was usually a major event in their life when they got a photo taken. But I think that the filmmaker really shows us the pictures from uh, the early African-American uh, photographers and uh, to, to let us know um, how difficult lives were for, the, for them because most of their faces look very sad. Did you notice that? Yes. No smiles whatsoever. I mean, not, it was just the whole energy of the photo was sad. Um, and as more photographers uh, emerged in the African-American world, it, it became apparent that the only way to overcome some of these advertising stereotypes of African-Americans was to show them as emerging citizens. And so that's what they set out to do. Uh, Booker T. Washington and Du Bois used photographs clearly to reshape uh, the understanding of African-Americans, not only by whites, by the Europeans and by the African Americans themselves. So this was a planned historical and political effort to depict a new image of the new Negro. Now, uh, Mr. Du Bois was the editor of a magazine called Crisis, and he used this magazine to show successful American uh, African American images. He showed them graduating from college moving to a new position in American history. Uh, and he said, we must always present black people positively and show visually that they are forever striving forward, and, which was a brilliant move. And he showed them participating as full citizens uh, because many African-Americans had to fight to achieve citizenships. And as years go by, you begin to see more self-confidence in these photos, um, more uh, prominence, uh, confidence. Um, even a little smile starts to appear, and they start to become a proud people, which they should be. Uh, but they said that you should look at how and why this type of imagery was produced to see it not just as a record but as a particular process of staging the advancements of the African-Americans. And then they showed pictures of white people uh, one time in the film. It shocked me. It looked like they were at some event. They were having a really good time then the people were laughing and enjoying themselves. And then when you looked up, where they panned back and showed you where the people were looking, it was a lynching. Did you remember that, Don, and dead bodies were hanging out over the crowd? A lynching party. Uh, you cannot forget the image. Incredible. And they sold tickets. They sold tickets to go to a, a lynching, just like it might be an exhibition or a concert. That was so upsetting. 
And thank God they put that in. We really should not forget these things. I think things disappear from history sometimes, and this is a very important uh, film. And they said that this was a very uh, an everyday common images of lynchings. It was just as common as a birthday photograph. <laughs> so it's horrendous that we allowed this to happen. And then he moves to Harlem, and he shows that as a new renaissance, a rebirth of the African-American, and the images taken by Banderas in New York in the 1928 era. Man, those are fantastic. You see blacks in tuxedos and women in these gorgeous gala costumes. And when uh, people discovered his photography, they were white people, Europeans, were shocked to see that black people actually dressed up. Well, I believe that black people are brilliant with clothes, and I love to go to uh, the Agape Church here in Los Angeles because it's better than an Easter Day parade in New York. The African-American women and men really know how to dress. So they had images from C. Daniel Dawson, photographers. And if you like good photography, if you want to see an amazing film on the history of black photography and on the rise of the black people, I highly recommend this film. Here, here. Yeah, it was a great film. A lot of work went into that, and he paced the the films and the images. It was a good pace and a good timing, good editing. It uh, moved you from way back early photos to current ones, and you really saw the rise uh, and the change in the in the African-American people. So now we're going to go to a love story. So what's, what did you think of Chris and Don? I love this love story. This is one of those films that really haunts me. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget it. Chris and Don, the, the subtitle is A Love Story. And it's directed and edited by a filmmaking team, Tina Mascara and Guido Sante, and it's distributed by Zeitgeist Films. And I had the pleasure recently of interviewing the two filmmakers, and they are just utterly delightful people and superbly talented. This is their first feature together. They've done two feature documentaries. And this feature, they document what I would uh, use, not lightly, the word epic, an epic love story of two gentlemen, Don Bacardi and Christopher Isherwood, and Don McCarty is a celebrated portrait in Southern California. And Christopher Isherwood is a legendary author, and his many people know this, but some people don't. Chris, one of Christopher Isherwood's many books is called Berlin Stories. And that book was the genesis for the Broadway play Cabaret and the film Cabaret. And Isherwood is 30 years older, was 30 years older than Don Bacardi, and they met when Don Bacardi was a, a very young man. And the film, uh, the film tells a story of their 30-year love affair, and uh, especially you see and hear and learn about Don Bacardi's emergence from somebody who just didn't have a, a, a strong sense of who they are and a, and a strong mission in life. He found himself, and with Isherwood's help, love, and support, he, he became... Uh, a very talented and very celebrated artist. And when this film ended, it left me speechless, Carol. I, I had trouble thinking about, what do I want to say about this film? I, I just couldn't imagine people staying together 30 years and maintaining that strong, loving bond. It's, 
It's very uncommon in our society, which is sad but true. So this I is, know, and at the end, where he told us he was sleeping in his office, Don was sleeping in Chris's office, um, because his energy was in that room. He wanted to be as close to him as he could. He had this lovely uh, home, but he slept in that room. It's amazing, isn't it? Yes, and and this, this film is very well produced. It, it is uh, just expertly edited. I just I was impressed with all aspects of this film, and uh, I'm so grateful that I found it. Yes. Oh, me too. Oh, thank you very much for bringing that to my attention. It's a 34-year relationship, and, and it is unusual, just like you said. And the thing was, uh, Don, when Don was only a teenager when Chris met him and they fell in love, and and they went to they weathered 30 years together in this unsettling relationship because I at the beginning they showed us where even the friends who were really pro-gay people asked them to move out of their guest house because of this disparity in age they thought it didn't look good so these two men must have had a really hard time going through life together because they look more like father son but they would be holding hands or something which is totally not right so gosh they had to overcome so many hurdles to make this relationship work, but they did, and they had a very good life together because of it. But I think it was a lot because of the respect that they had for each other. Uh, and and uh, they made a decision not to have any pets because they thought that the love they would give to a pet might take away even a tiny bit of love that they would give each other. So they decided no pets in the relationship. But they called each other by pet names and wrote uh, love uh, poems and signed it as the horse or the cat or whatever. Uh, But they just were the most creative men. Uh, and it started. They started out taking a lot of pictures of each other, and they had an eight millimeter camera. And they, the film starts back in the fifties, and uh, you can see that all of those images were perfectly for this documentary. It was as if they had planned some day to piece all of these moments together in the future and have this whole history of their relationship. And both of them are artists of the highest caliber. Uh, and the art in the film works really well with the old film and the old photos. You're totally engaged from the beginning of this film as Chris immediately recounts meeting Don and falling in love and deciding that this was an arrangement that he was willing to give up anything in order to accommodate his feelings for Don. And there you go. I like the way the film started off with the story of the long-term relationship, and then it goes back to the childhood of both of them. And Isherwood was from England. And now we know that being gay uh, could mean a jail sentence in England. So um, when he really realized that he was gay, he left England. He went to Germany, which was the best thing he could possibly do because he got the idea for his book, Kit Kat Club, and that became the film Cabaret. This trip to Germany took him to one of the most important places at the best time when Hitler's Germany was just on the rise. And uh, Chris was formulating ideas about his collaboration of stories, and he, did, he wrote Goodbye to Berlin, 
and I Am a Camera, which was a play and then was made into the brilliant film Cabaret uh, with Lisa Minnelli and Joel Gray. And I I will always say, in my mind, that was one of Joel Gray's best parts. And then Chris traveled around Europe, and because he was a pacifist, when the war broke out, he came over to the United States, and he settled in California. And L.A. was perfect for him, and he became involved with actors and all sorts of cultural and artistic life. And uh, Chris thinks that writing for Hollywood, uh, he said, made him a better writer because he had to learn the economy of language and how to set things up in a paragraph rather than write pages of dialogue. So he wrote with a camera eye, and he left us saying, I am a camera with my shutter open, and someday all of this will have to be developed. It's a great love story, Don. Yes. Yeah, I do recommend it. And Dal, tell us what you think of plastic people in Exile Nation. Right. Uh, So this is a film that you made me see, Carol Dean. And I, right. and I thank you for it. You made me see it. But I, I know when you tell me I have to see a film, I know it's going to be a great film. The, the uh, official title is Exile Nation, The Plastic People. It is directed by Charles Shaw, and it's based on the work of two gentlemen, Chris Brava and uh, Jorge Nieto. And, uh, Chris Brava is uh, ex- the late Chris Brava. And it's Distributed by Devolver Digital Films. I'll say that again, Devolver Digital Films. That's where you can, one place you can find it. Edward James Olmos is the narrator for the film. And he opens the film with some, the basic information about why there is a film. He talks about mass deportations that happened uh, right after the September 11th attacks in the U.S. And they estimate between four and six million people were deported from the United States. The hardest hit were Latinos, primarily Mexicans, who make up 97% of those that were deported. And what happens with these people is that they are rejected by America. They're sent back to Mexico. And within five days of coming back to Mexico, the powers that be remove their, remove their American papers whatever papers they may have, but they don't have Mexican papers. So they are without a nation, and they live in a, in a borderline but, uh, in between two nations, but habitate neither. And the fifth film takes place in Tijuana, in a part of Tijuana called the Zona Norte. And the film follows a few people that live there and suffer there and die there. And what Charles Shaw is doing is documenting uh, another way that us humans are being inhuman to ourselves. And uh, Chris Brava, that I mentioned, the late Chris Brava, was a photographer, and he kind of serves as a host uh, through this uh, seeing the world uh, that these people live in, a, a world where you you live in poverty and violence, and you can go walk a few hundred yards and look north, and you can see San Diego. Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable, isn't it? Yes. I was, I was, I was stunned by a Charles Shaw film. I, I went, went to his site, and, and I see that Charles Shaw is somebody that we should all know about. He, he's, he's, a, he's an incredible journalist. He, he is 
these uh, researching and documenting very tough topics and situations, and he deserves a lot more attention than, than he's been getting. So I'm happy to do whatever I can to bring his work to the attention of anyone and everyone. Yes, absolutely right. Well, millions of American immigrants, uh, <laughs> it's about uh, these people who are who have lived and grown up many times in America. They're used to living free and being respected and having a, a nice life or a decent life, and but um, they've been arrested after a whole lifetime of being American, and they've been dumped on the border of the U.S. and Mexico. Um, it's amazing because they have been stripped of their identification and stripped of any hope of work because they don't know anything of Mexico. They've, they've lived in America, most of them. And so this canal, this ditch that Don was telling you about, it's, it runs along the fence to the United States, and it's abandoned by both nations, and it's infested with junkies, prostitutes, and drug cartels. So many of the people turn to drugs for comfort, and they're living in this sewer, and they're prostituting themselves. So the people just try to stay alive uh, one more day uh, as because the Tijuana Border Police are really tough on them. There's a zero-tolerance policy for everybody concerned and so they say it's an endless nightmare of beatings, imprisonments, and even murder. Oh, my gosh. So what happened was that Chris Bava, who's a prolific traveler and photographer with a, uh, an addiction, opiate addiction he had, decided to try a replacement therapy in Tijuana to get clean. He walked into a scene that he had no idea existed, and he began to document this with his camera. And then Chris met Charles Shaw, who's a motivational speaker and author, and now he's a filmmaker. And it was Charles, with his brilliant eye for a great shot, that began to illegally capture these people and their everyday lives, focusing on a group of men living in the canal area as they try to dodge this operativo and simply survive another day of horror. And the two of them, Chris Bob and Charles Shaw, sometimes had to use flip camera because uh, they were hiding from the authorities. They couldn't walk around with cameras. And uh, together they recorded some of the daily terror that these people endure just to function as human beings. Now, this brings up uh, how important it is that it doesn't matter what you're shooting on, Uh my ma marketing manager, Richard Kaufman, just told me today about a film that was shot on a cell phone. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, it's the story, Don. Just what's the story is the basic need here. And if you've got a camera and you capture the image, the sound, and the emotion, and the story, then you have a film uh, in many cases. But these two men are really uh, talented and I think this is a real, a very important historical film, and I highly recommend it. It's amazing what's going on right at the border, and none of us know this. Well, right, and that's what documentary films are about, and that's what we're about. Uh, Exile Nation, another way you can find the film is going to exilenation.org, which is Charles Shaw's, uh, his own site, and then you click on Plastic People at the top of the homepage and you'll find the movie. Great. 
Um, all right, now let's go to another shocker <laughs> called Daddy, I Do. Tell us your review of this. Oh, I'll tell you, all the films we're talking about today are about worlds that I never knew existed. Or if, if I even imagined them, I could not never have had any contact with them. I was just, And Daddy, I Do is another film about a world I never knew existed. The Purity Ball. Had you heard of that before this film? Never. Never in my life. It was a shocker. So uh, the Purity Ball was conceived of in 1998, and it's a national movement uh, in uh, at least 48 of the, of the United States, if not all, all of them, in 17 countries. And what goes on in the Purity Ball, it's for fathers and daughters, and it's it's a ball and it's a ceremony where the daughter pledges uh, purity, repletes, a pledge is to remain a virgin until marriage, and she makes that pledge specifically to her father. And uh, she is given a silver ring, which is uh, re- representative of the father-daughter bond and the daughter's pledge. And uh, so Cassie J. Uh, discovered this or knew about this world, and Cassie J. is the director and the editor of the, of the film. This is her first feature film, she made it as a very young woman. She is a talented, young, beautiful, talented actress. But she's, she's, uh, she's turned into a, a powerful filmmaker. And she began to explore the purity ball and that world. And that brought her to the world of abstinence-only education, which has been getting uh, some modest amount of journalistic coverage. Uh, we've spent, as a nation, uh, more than a billion dollars on abstinence-only sex education. Ninety percent of of women of teenagers who commit to abstinence-only uh, uh, abstinence-only life uh, do not uh, follow their commitment, and so that's a more than a billion dollars that has been essentially wasted, and so. Cassie J, in true documentary fashion, followed the story, and the story took her to shattered lives, lives that were were uh, destroyed by poverty, by, by unwanted pregnancies, by STDs, all because of a lack of comprehensive sex education. And Daddy, I do is co- covers that powerfully. And and Cassie J, again, she's she's a first time feature. Uh, director, she she put herself right into the story. She she confronted um, uh, young people directly. Uh, the scenes were not uh, set up. She just walked in, not knowing what she's going to meet, and that's what the, she shot. And it's a very powerful film. It's infuriating, but Cassie J has done a great job of bringing uh, what I consider to be a, a critical topic involving how we help our young people grow up. Infuriating is a great word. I got so upset watching that film, and I had my granddaughter watch it with me, and we both got so upset we had to turn it off and talk about it, turn it back on, and then get more upset. (laughs) It's really shocking to see what information is out there and how they, what's going on with sex in today's world, how children are being taught. 
and what they're being taught and how it affects them. And what do the boys think of women? I mean, it is just, and it's a film that wakes you up. So I I think uh, kudos to the filmmaker. Thank her uh, sincerely from the bottom of my heart for making the film, even though it upset me so much. I don't know if that was the intent, but uh, we have to do something about all this. It's not right. Cassie J is somebody that we're going to be hearing a lot, a lot from over the dec- next few decades. She's a very talented young filmmaker. Yes, very talented. She really opens your mind to so much information, and particularly about how men see women. With When she interviewed those frat, you know, frat guys, those young guys, talking about when they uh, lost their virginity and how, it was never one nice mention of women. I mean, it was an, it, it, it were, they were objects. They were just it was living party dolls. Situation. They were living party dolls to these guys. Yes, and and the frat house was right next door to the house where you to the office that the pregnant women would go to to ask for help, where they are convinced they need to have the children, and they talk. What is it? Almost seventy percent of the. Uh, young women into having their babies and that's next door to the frat house where the guys are uh, on the prowl for young women it's a she does that all throughout the film she puts all this up for us to review and analyze and and get infuriated about some of these things that are happening yes and i want to emphasize she gives equal voice strong voice to those that, that are working for abstinence-only education. She lets them make their point, make their argument. She was like a journalist covering covering a story, and she covers both sides equally well, which you don't see that often in films and in news stories. But she does take a position, uh, which is good. She took a position for the, the obvious position of the healthier way to help children. She did. She did. And uh, well done. Well, thank you very much, Claire, and thank you, John. What a great uh, group of films that we covered today. I uh, look forward to February. We'll be back with five more wonderful films. And in the meantime, you can read Don's reviews that he posts almost daily uh, on documentaries on FromTheHeartProductions.com website. See you in a month, Don. Thank you, Carol. Yes. Thank you, Claire. All right. Oh, thank Take you, care. Wonderful job. Be well, everyone. Bye. Bye. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's david, R-A-I-K-L-E-N.com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. <laughs>